The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. You're watching Squawk Box in your headlines. Fed Chair Jerome Powell acknowledges the pain of rising interest rates, but stresses the central bank needs independence in order to make tough decisions. Restoring price stability when inflation is high can require measures that are not popular in the short term as we raise interest rates to slow the economy. The absence of direct political control over our decisions allows us to take these necessary measures without considering short-term political factors. Asian markets rack up gains with the Hang Seng leading Asian indices higher. We will speak with Hong Kong's financial secretary, Paul Chan, live from the Asian Financial Forum. That's at 7.40 CET. Uh, the World Bank has slashed its global growth projection almost in half, warning the economy is on pace for its weakest growth in almost three decades. The president, David Malpass, tells CNBC there is hope, though, if China's reopening goes smoothly. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here today. I guess I'd like to start by, by thanking you, Stefan, for your friendship, for being a great colleague. It enables effective oversight, in our case, by Congress, which in turn supports the Fed's democratic legitimacy about the basis for and the consequences of the decisions that we make in service to the American people. There you go. Uh, Airbus keeps the crown as the world's top plane maker. Well, there's only two of them, but anyway. World's top t plane maker with 2022 deliveries climbing 8%. Well ahead of Boeing, but still below initial estimates. The French government announces plans to raise the retirement age to 64 saying it's necessary to avoid a major structural deficit, but union chiefs respond with strike plans for next week. So, a very warm welcome to the programme, everybody. You may have noticed uh, we gave you Jay Powell twice and not David Malpass, but we will give you David Malpass a little bit later on in the programme. But just referring uh, back to what Jay Powell was saying, very interesting speech. It, to my mind, seemed to answer a question that actually nobody was really asking at the moment. But let's listen in to what he said and maybe we'll have a chat about it. The uh, Fed must maintain its independence in order to successfully tackle inflation, according to Jay Powell. The US central bank governor addressed the Riksbank symposium ahead of crucial CPI data which is due out on Thursday, he stressed the need to steer clear of policy not directly tied to the Federal Reserve's goals. Powell said tackling price pressures calls for tough and often unpopular decisions. Price stability is the bedrock of a healthy economy and provides the public with immeasurable benefits over time. But restoring price stability when inflation is high can require measures that are not popular in the short term as we raise interest rates to slow the economy. The absence of direct political control over our decisions allows us to take these necessary measures without considering short-term political factors. It is essential that we stick to our statutory goals and authorities and that we resist the temptation to broaden our scope to address other important social issues of the day. Taking on new goals, however worthy, without a clear statutory mandate would undermine the case for our independence. 
In the area, uh, in the area of bank regulation, uh, as Tobias mentioned, the Fed has a degree of independence, as do the other federal bank regulators. Independence in this area helps ensure that the public can be confident that our supervisory decisions are not influenced by political considerations. Powell also addressed the Fed's role in combating climate change. The Fed does have a narrow but important responsibilities regarding climate-related financial risks. These responsibilities are tightly linked to our responsibilities for bank supervision. The public reasonably expects supervisors to require that banks understand and can appropriately manage their material risks, including the financial risks of climate change. But without explicit congressional legislation, it would be inappropriate for us to use our monetary policy or supervisory tools, for example, to promote a greener economy or to achieve other climate-based goals. We are not, and we will not be, a climate policy maker. God, have we still got any viewers? I'm sorry, I'm absolutely... Do you know, it's like going to the Golden Globes and thinking you're going to get Ricky Gervais and you're getting someone dull instead. It's like watching Squawk Box without us ad-libbing and just reading prompt for three hours. I mean, come on, everyone. We didn't want to hear Jay Powell on Independent. I know, because we spoke to Stefan Ingves, the host of the event, that it was going to be about central bank independence. It's a worthy conversation. The climate conversation is a worthy conversation. I genuinely feel a lot of um, personal... Um, stake in this game about climate change. But the fact of the matter is what the market really wanted to hear, what we wanted to hear, what the viewers wanted to hear was any little tidbits about what's going on with central bank policy, about monetary policy. We'd build up the event that he might say something and guess what? He said nothing. So we just have to rely on the daily tape, the Bostic tape as well. So yeah, we're still going to be higher. We're still going to remain above 5%. I'm sorry, but for the markets, it was a total non-event. Do you think? Yes. I wonder whether we learnt more than we think. For instance, number go one, on, that, on. that um, Powell's not going to do a Mark Carney on us. He's not going to go down the pathway of taking the central bank into climate change. So that's quite big as we talk about the risk for insurance companies and also banks. You? Well, if you change the playing field from the central bank, but what they consider the parameters about lending and not the risk uh, that could be across the financial system, it does force banks to react uh, much quicker in terms of their lending practices. So that's one on climate change. Number two, when it comes to uh, what we hear around some of the unpopular reactions we may have from the tough action on inflation. Doesn't that set the scene for the next uh, presidential election in the United States, that some of this polarization we've already witnessed in other parts of the world and in the United States, that could just get worse because of central bank policy. We haven't seen anything yet kind of rhetoric that uh, the tightening to date hasn't really hit home for a lot of consumers just yet. That pain trade could be around the corner. It could be expressed politically. The third factor here, the fact that we didn't get anything around the interest rate story. Doesn't that tell you that Powell is sitting back waiting? Maybe 25 basis points is possible. Maybe it's not going to be 50 at the next meeting. So question mark over that policy action. Uh, I mean, the other talking heads out there have really given us no, no more clarity than we got from Jay Powell yesterday about what the outcome of the end of the month meeting is going to be from the Federal Reserve. Um, we obviously had the World Bank yesterday out there talking about how the global economy is on a razor edge. Last week, the IMF gave us its thunderous prediction on where the global economy is going to be. And, that, and then on the other side of the coin, you've got the market's view that 
actually it's not going to be as bad as uh, many of these talkers are saying and as bad as the Fed is saying in terms of where interest rates peak out. And, and just to throw one more piece of evidence on, on the table, um, Jamie Dimon, who I think the markets broadly respect as a seasoned participant in the markets, whether they always believe that he's doing any more than talking his own book is another issue. But it's interesting that he himself appears to have pivoted away from his more negative calls on the outlook and this this whole line about the hurricane that's coming in the United States and for the global economy. He very clearly stepped away from that line of rhetoric yesterday at the JP, JP Morgan um, Health Conference in the United States, so I think when he was interviewed by Fox. And he's just one other of those sort of market participants who appear now to be tamping down expectations for recession in the Eurozone, serious deep recession in the United States. Um, in fact, the worst predictions that we're getting from the likes of the IMF and the World Bank. So at the moment, it seems to me you, you makes your choice, you takes your pick and you decide which one of these talking heads you want to go down the road with. Um, in terms of your investment strategy. But what is clear at this stage, and I, I kind of agree with you on that, that I don't think Jay Powell actually gave the market anything yesterday Look, that was useful in, in terms of interpreting the next step in um, uh, monetary policy. Let me go to the data, because I thought the data was far more interesting and will be far more interesting than anything he said. Don't get me wrong, I, I agree with you, by the way, about a lot of what you said about the ramifications longer term for... Mm politicians versus central bankers. I agree with you about the climate. I just don't think that's what the market is hanging on to his every word for at the moment. I think I'm going to go back to the data. I, I think far more interesting than anything Mr. Diamond said and far more anything interesting than Mr. Powell said was the fact that we had the NFIB yesterday, which was way worse than expected in December, falling to 89.8. Now, sentiment uh, is at its lows since February 2020. So I think, A, we saw some downbeat data yesterday. Not the biggest data point, but we are going to get the biggest data point. And I think that's why um, Powell didn't say anything yesterday, because we've still got the massive, the daddy, the mummy of data is coming tomorrow. And I think, what's the point in going out on a limb one way or other from any of these Fed speakers at the moment when we've still got the mother of all data, the yeah. CPI due tomorrow? It's like a seesaw, isn't it? And Powell's sort of in the middle of this point, whether the data comes through hotter or colder than expected. But they've been it consistent, goes one way or they? the other. But I think that's the thing. We don't know whether it's going to be 50 or 25 basis points for the next rate hike because yeah. of this data. It's the final piece of the puzzle. So it's quite key at this point. When it comes to your comments about Jamie Dimon, he was still forecasting some sort of a, a tropical <coughs> storm. He just downgraded the prediction from a hurricane. So we've seen that in terms of weather forecasts, meteorologists, that you can get a downgrade. And I think that's where the market has been. We've had a downgrade in these negative pessimistic forecasts for this year because there is a hope that the central bank won't be as aggressive because the data will play ball. Um, that's why this week is so significant. If the data doesn't give us that uh, hope, if it's not coming in lower as anticipated, then we could go back to those pain trades again. And I think you've seen expressed even yesterday, technology names again out in front and versus just sort of wading back into the sector. Amazon was one stock yesterday. Investors think if this year is going to be better than anticipated and uh, buying up tech stocks, that could all just reverse at some point down the track. Um, I'll just add that we're going to get some more illuminating data from for the big banks reporting on Friday, including Diamonds, JPM, Bank of America, City and Wells. And then on the Tuesday, we've got Goldman's and Morgan. So we'll know pretty well by Tuesday evening 
how the banks have fared in this, and they'll give us a good barometer on the consumer as well. You had something else to say? No, no, no. I know Ludwig's waiting in the wings. All right, let's do this then. Okay, moving on. Other key global central bank officials also attended the Riksbank Symposium in person and discussed the policy implications of climate concerns. We're actually in the process of selling our corporate bond portfolio. We did tilt it. Um, but we're selling it because my judgment is that's the right thing to do from the point of view of monetary, monetary conditions. Um, from the point of view of climate change, of course, it might be better if we didn't sell it, but actually that's not the primary objective. What we have to make sure is that we stay firmly within our mandate, but that we, can do, that we do what we can within the boundaries of that uh, mandate, and all that, of course, always without prejudice to price stability. And then I think the communication is not that hard. And by the way, I mean, is there anyone who thinks that the current inflationary situation and so on is subject to the fact that we put too much emphasis on climate change? I mean, is that a, a reasonable presumption? Actually, you could even say it's quite, I mean, it's quite the opposite. Bank of Japan should uh, cooperate with the government uh, as necessary and uh, when necessary. And I think uh, the government has already uh, specified uh, climate uh, change policies uh, quite clear. There you go, Schnabel and Kuroda-san there. Okay, let's move on. We've done a lot of this quickly. So uh, Karen mentioned that the Nasdaq up again three days in a row, 1% higher. Elsewhere, the Dow putting on six temps of 1%. S&P, seven temps higher. Quick look at the Treasuries. We're waiting for our guess in the wings. 3.7% the five-year. The two-year yield down to 4.23 now. Dollar crosses, what do they look like? Okay, dollar yuan. 6.77, uh, dollar yen steady at 132. The pound, yeah, it seems to be in a tightish range at the moment, 119, 122, trading near the top end of that. But the euro moving ahead uh, pretty well, actually, 107.48. Asian indices are currently trading thus. Hang Seng moving higher, 1.2% higher. Nikkei moving 1% in a northerly direction as well. And the opening calls for European markets, which just felt a little bit soggy yesterday, uh, they are coming out of the gates on the front foot in the green. Mr Cutmore. Yeah, let's get to uh, Ludovic uh, Subran then, Chief Economist at Allianz. Uh, Ludovic, good to have you with us this morning. You would have heard us talking about the market focus on the Fed here. Uh, and perhaps some disappointment with Jay Powell's uh, unwillingness to address um, the direction of interest rates and inflation. But maybe give us your view here, because we've got a bit of groupthink from the IMF and from the World Bank at this point about how bad the downside is going to be. Will it be that bad, in your opinion? You know, the, the, what is interesting is that if it is that bad, it is also because of the Fed in the United States, at least, right? So we're still banking on a 50 basis rate hike. Uh, we expect inflation to come out uh, tomorrow around 6.5%. And, you know, there is something which is interesting about uh, Powell's speech yesterday, which is this, um, he's warning the world that it's going to be a very political first half of the year because central banks are still determined to go higher while governments are going to, you know, be after them, nagging them to stop hiking because it's, it is going to be creating tighter and tighter monetary and financial conditions. So we maintain our call for zero growth in the U.S., for example, for 23. I, I do believe it's not going to be Armageddon. I think there are a lot of resilience pockets everywhere. But, you know, I think the Fed is pretty determined to get inflation back in track. And to the other side of the equation, the fiscal policy in the U.S. is still very uncertain uh, with what's happening in Congress right now. So it's going to be a tough, a, a tough year. So a year of deceleration. 
I think the Trump play recovery of 21 and 22 is behind. And now 23, we're getting back to the basics and the basics are going to be okay, but a lot of triage is going to happen. You see already on corporates, you know, it's going to be the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think on, on households, it's going to be about, you know, those that are very vulnerable that needs a bit of assistance and others that are going to have to be very careful and cautious with their investments. So that's going to be a bit the year uh, 2023. It's not bad, but it's not going to be grand. Yeah? We, um, we see a lot of uh, hope, though, around the, the falling energy price and the fact that China is reopening, the belief that that is repairing supply chains and also that the central government is now worried about growth and is beginning to look at measures to stimulate uh, noise from the PBOC, noise from the central government about relieving some of the uh, debt servicing pressure on provincial governments and on the property sector companies. Is that not going to help perhaps extend this at least emerging market rally we're seeing? You know, I think it's going to be an interesting year for emerging markets, but because China is going to reopen and it's going to have its own V-shaped recovery. The problem is in the short term, you have an absenteeism in China's factories and then the New Year's Eve. That is going to be a major hiccup on supply chains and on growth in the beginning of the year. So the, the first part is a bit complicated because COVID cases are, num- are very numerous and that there is a lot of absenteeism. So I expect a bit of pressure actually on supply chains and on growth including an emerging market as a spillover of Chinese growth being depressed in the first part. And then you've seen already what China is ready to do on the real estate. So yes, it's going to be a quite a nice V-shape, and this is quite good for commodity exporters, but this is not good for us in Europe because we're going to get a little bit of a rebound in inflation if China really reopens very fast because they have uh, uh, you know, an extra consumption uh, a knack that could actually be creating additional imported inflation in Europe. So China is going to make or break a bit the the volatility, I would say, of both growth and inflation in the coming months. I think it's going to be net positive to the world. The the Chinese consumer is not going to save the world, but it's going to be better off in six months from now. It's going to be okay, actually, as you say, for emerging markets, including the Fed pivot. We have a pivot at the end of the year. This is going to be actually quite good uh, for emerging markets. So yes, let's talk about something okay for emerging markets towards the end of the year. Ludovic, let's uh, just talk about the U.S. inflation print, too, because we are setting up for such a huge number later in the week. What, the 6.5% of the market anticipates versus 7.1% in November. What's your forecast for the short term for this data point, but also over the course of this year? Where do you see U.S. inflation going? You know, we have uh, the next reading, we have <clears throat> we have 6.5. And, you know, I think what is interesting is that we get inflation back in check because of the Fed, uh, you know, very uh, strong craft. Uh, so so by, tw- by end of 23, we're back close to 2% on uh, on a yearly basis. So the average inflation for 23 in the US is going to be above, it's going to be close to 3.5. In Europe, we're still at 6, I remember. But we get back very close to 2% towards the end of the year. So that's actually good. Uh, that's that. At least that's not bad. In Europe, it's a different ballgame, as you can imagine, because the energy uh, respite, the energy price respite that we see here is at best temporary, right? Because we, it is because we are controlling prices or we're anchoring that we're controlling prices. But the energy gap in the next winter is still a big question mark because we've not increased capacity in renewable energy everywhere. So that's why also we have this risk of rebounding inflation in Europe that is still very much there and with an impossibility because the ECB is not going to hike to 5%. The ECB is going to be you know, close to 3% at best and, and most of the inflation is not related to overheating. So we're going to have a little bit more inflation in, the, in Europe, uh, more around 6% over the year 23, and we stay in yearly basis above 4% at the end of 23. So a very different 
landscape and, and outlook for inflation between the US and Europe in 23. Can we talk a little bit more about how consumers are behaving right now? Because I was just looking at some data out of Australia. And when I was there recently, it felt as though we still had this supersized spending taking place, reinforced in the data again, uh, retail sales at 1.4%. Uh, that uh, was a step up from October. Inflation re-accelerating to 7.3% in November. There's been a series of rate hikes in that country. What's the gap here? Are we waiting for consumers to catch up to a higher mortgage and credit costs? Why are we not seeing a reaction that we would have seen in the past to very aggressive monetary action? Excess hoarding is the key. Imagine people have had almost a year of not spending on leisure. In the US, we estimate that this over, over saving, the excess saving from uh, COVID, from not being able to travel or to go to restaurant, is going to only fade in Q3 23 after almost a year or you know year and a half of strong inflation. That's what we see everywhere. Actually, in some countries, we even see that because of the self-fulfilling prophecy of inflation, of, of recession, we see uh, uh, households that are still saving when they're purchasing additional precautionary saving, when the purchasing power is very much indented by the inflation pressure, eroding by the day, right? So we have this very bizarre uh, consumer, depending on the country and depending on, of course, the, the, the gradient of income, but we have a consumer that is resilient for now because of the excess savings that have been accrued through 20 and 21. But this is coming to an end, right? Because at the end, just the interest rate shock, if I think about, you know, my country, France, where interest rates are pretty muted, I would say, the interest rate shock in 23 is equivalent to one full point of purchasing power. So you're going to start to see that in the hard data, in the volume of sales, right? But it's, it is taking a lot more time than previous recession because they ha- there was this stock of saving that was made during COVID and that is still being unspe- you know, de-saved as we speak. Ludovic, um, you have done a, a piece, 31 pages, and we're very much enjoying reading it. And on page eight <laughs> of it, it says, energy crisis, how much longer? Have we got an energy crisis anymore or are we in a a, a phase at the moment where the energy crisis is non-existent? Because I look at oil prices, I look at gasoline prices, I look at derivatives such as heating oil, which I'm a consumer of in the countryside, and then I look at natural gas prices in Europe as well. And I actually can't see an energy crisis at the moment. Yeah, because I think the, the, the respite in prices is also because the prices in 22 didn't mean much. The, the 400 or 500% increase in the price of natural gas was stupid, right? It's not. It's because it was not a market that was functioning. My concern for the energy prices, especially in Europe, is the fact that gas storage is actually at its peak now, but it's going to fade and we don't have substitution or not enough substitution for Russian gas. So by the winter uh, and the spring of 24, we don't really have an, an option if we don't reimport Russian gas. We're going to be you know, navigating with 30% gas storage. And so this is something in terms just of volume, not in terms of price, because price, we're controlling price. You know, the EU is going to get an agreement on getting some form of, of price around 250, uh, you know, your, your, uh, uh, for metric cube of gas or something. So, so the problem is going to be volume. And, and to be fair, in the past nine months, in the past almost a year since uh, the war in Ukraine started, we haven't increased capacity in renewable energy as much. We've just spend money to avoid that people go to roundabouts and to avoid another yellow vest movement. So we spend 250 billion euros in Europe to avoid, to compensate some of the effects of the energy crisis. We've done that untargeted, so it's very costly for the public finances, but we haven't really moved the needle on finding substitution. And we have 
barely move the needle on adjusting consumption. Some of the manufacturing sectors are adjusting consumption, but the households have not, you know, rationed their own consumption. So I'm very concerned about what's going to happen next winter. And, and, and it's true that it's, it's, it's just in the making. And right now, let's enjoy the respect, but we don't have an energy substitution uh, solution. Right, Ludovic, I've whizzed forward to page 20 of 31, <laughs> and I'm going to really disagree with you here. It says here, 2022 was an unmitigated disaster for capital markets. Boo-hoo, I say. Thank goodness we've got money repriced. Thank goodness we're looking at business models. Thank goodness we're looking at discounted cash flow. I think 2022 was a much welcome boost of reality and realism about economic prospects for some uh, of the people who are raising money in capital markets. I applaud the fact that there was realism rather than it being an unmitigated disaster. But you disagree. No, I think we're saying the same thing. It's just, you know, you're taking one specific viewpoint, which is also my very cynical viewpoint, which was there was a lot of chutzpah in the market that needed to be corrected. And this was cathartic. But, you know, I had to to play the unmitigated disaster card for all these people whose savings are really melted like snow under the sun. Think about the pensioners that went on pension last year and that wanted to cash out whatever they had and that saved, you know. The negative wealth effect from the... You know, the nowhere to hide, you know, on stocks and, and bonds last year was actually not very good. So so this is this is two sides of the same coin. I, I do agree, though, and that's I think what you hinted at, that this year is a good opportunity to re-enter the market. But please be selective. I'm, I'm very concerned about people that are buying high yield bonds like there is no tomorrow. I'm very also concerned about people that think that the stock market, that what we saw in the beginning of the year is what's going to happen all the year. I think it's going to be very volatile until we get some clarity on uh, central banks uh, policy making and so 2022 was really bad i'm sorry but but it is also quite welcome uh, as as a form of repricing uh, and and now is about more triaging and a bit more deciding what is good and what has good fundamentals and what does not and i think that i hope that's what also we're going to get from this normalization of monetary policy Ludovic, brilliant. I love chatting to you. We all do. And I agree it was cathartic in many ways. About time you got out of your Bavarian penthouse and came and see us in London, I think, really. Um, but we'll discuss that on another occasion. <laughs> Ludovic, lovely to see you, sir. Happy New Year. Ludovic Subran, who is Chief Economist at Allianz. The World Bank has cut its 2023 growth forecast, citing a weaker economic climate. The organization now expects global growth of 1.7% this year, down sharply from its previous 2.9% projection. The group said its previous worst-case scenario is now its baseline, with the global economy close to falling into recession. However, the World Bank president, David Malapas, told CNBC that China's reopening could, could be a bright spot. I think China is a key variable and there may be some upside uh, for China if they push through the, the COVID as quickly as they seem to be doing. You know, most of the world had a post-COVID rebound that was sharp. Uh, and China delayed that through the lockdowns. Uh, and so it's possible that they'll come through. It's possible they'll come through. Let's hope so. Uh, coming up on the show, just ahead of the earnings season on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs unveils its most sweeping cost-cutting program since the financial crisis. What does it mean for their private jets? We'll discuss next. And for more on how central banks are balancing monetary policy decision-making with broader social and political considerations, be sure to subscribe to the School Fox podcast.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Goldman Sachs is launching its most significant cost-cutting drive since the financial crisis, which will see more than 3,000 layoffs and investment banking bonuses slashed. It comes after the Wall Street giant posted a 44% slump in net profit in the first nine months of last year, as deal-making and capital markets activity suffered a sharp slowdown. America's biggest mortgage lender, Wells Fargo, will step back from the housing market in the face of rising interest rates and declining profits. Wells says it'll focus on home loans for existing customers and wealth management clients and shift its growth strategy towards investment banking and credit cards. JP Morgan boss Jamie Dimon has walked back comments that the U.S. economy faces a hurricane and insisted that the bank will continue hiring in the face of a looming downturn. Speaking at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, Diamond said he should never have used the word hurricane last year, but warned, quote, storm clouds could worsen. Diamond also said he expected the Fed would continue hiking rates, potentially surpassing 6%. Um, I think we're chatting, but I just want to pick up on the Goldman story. Obviously, we're on the cusp of bank earnings season, so to have an announcement like this does set the tone, doesn't it, around cost-cutting. But we've had a number of other months, nine months, what of uh, profits sliding 44%, setting the scene for how you reach those uh, targets on return. So I think a very strict action here. And what you've seen, don't forget last year, we had a lot of very strong action post-COVID. I mean, all those volatile trends we thought would be downbeat after COVID hit. But then we had these extraordinary trading patterns. We all sat back and went, well, Fick did, did what? That's extraordinary. And the trading is doing what? Equities, uh, debt markets, the M&A, they kicked off after that. And I think the banks had to scramble to keep up like everybody else, hiring more workers. Now, as we look into the rest of 2023, very different stories. So it's uh, just that rationalization to try to protect earnings. Just interesting that uh, JP Morgan insists that they are still hiring at this point. So I don't think the story is the same for every bank. It seems to depend on which particular segment you're focused on here. Wells Fargo acknowledging slowdown in the housing and mortgage market. Goldman Sachs acknowledging slowdown in M&A and advisory around deal making. JP Morgan acknowledging that there is opportunity for trading desks in volatile markets. And I think perhaps that's part of the story where they, you know, according to his view, believe this extended bear market rally will continue for a little time yet. And that's an opportunity if you just add sales and trading desk workers to try and make something out of that volatility. I I think those stories just typify US banks versus European banks. I don't want to be up on European banks. I want European champions. But it's like the concertina. They can shrink when they need to and then they can grow aggressively when they want to. And then they can shrink again certain business areas and they can grow other business areas as well. And that's the beauty of the US banks compared with the Europeans. And all we talk about is slow 
a plodding behaviour from the Credit Suisses or the Deutsche Bank reorganisation story or what's going on at Barclays and things. And they don't seem to be as nimble uh, as the US banks when it comes to, OK, that business area has declined somewhat. We're doing less M&A. We'll just get rid of some bankers there. We're not doing much on crypto. We can retire that desk or we can move them on to something else as well. Uh, and by and large, that is reflecting valuations. Just on Goldman's, interesting, we've got that on the screen. It has massively underperformed in terms of its price to book some of the, the, the biggest names out there in the US investment banking scene. For instance, JP trades at 1.4 times full, uh, a price to book, Goldman's trading at one time. So they clearly want to get themselves back on track with the best in the sector. It does make you wonder whether uh, JP Morgan didn't hire some of the right people it needed to in the past phase. We think what, what the banks have been doing, it's not just the business of banking. Some of it has been getting into innovative areas of technology as well. And Goldman's, of course, one of the biggest names in the business. Did they find some of the right talent during that phase? And did uh, JP Morgan not have the same access? We're now in this phase, of course, where technology job cuts are accelerating. So some key uh, talented people are going back into the job market. And if Goldman's is cutting as well, does that just leave JP Morgan nicely placed to, to pick up some key staff? We'll get a lot of evidence on this on Friday where both JP, Bank of America, City and Wells reporting Goldman's and uh, Morgan Stanley on Tuesday next week. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.